HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And when you think of tea, I'm sure you must think of the British. Tea is part of the British identity. According to the UK Tea Company statistics, the British consume over 165 million cups of tea daily. That's roughly 60 billion cups per year, and that's a lot of tea. But did you ever think about where the tea in the cup comes from? Mm, It's a story rife with politics, social hierarchies, global economics, and wars. My guest today, Erica Rappaport, delves into how Europeans adopted, appropriated, and altered Chinese tea culture to build a widespread demand for tea in Britain and other global markets. It's all in her new book, A Thirst for Empire, How Tea Shaped the Modern World. Erica is a European cultural history interested in the history of gender and consumer cultures in modern Britain and its empire. She's professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of Shopping for Pleasure, Women in the Making of London's West End, and co-editor of Consuming Behaviors, Identities, Politics, and Pleasure in the 20th Century Britain. Welcome, Erica. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's This is a wonderful book that we're going to talk about. The name of the book, again, is called A Thirst for Empire, How Tea Shaped the Modern World, or as I kind of like to think about it, how politics and publicity influence international economy. <laughs> but, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but but it is, uh, it, it, there's not a topic that isn't touched in this book in in past and modern day um, <laughs> culture. And it really, I was 
a little daunted at first when I said, oh, how am I going to tackle this huge volume in a half an hour or 45 minutes or whatever we can <laughs> squeeze out here? But as I started going through it, it just, I mean, it really, it kind of flew. <laughs> and, I'm glad. <laughs> yes, that is, uh, you know, compliments to you because you, it's, it's a lot of information packed in, but very readable. You, you make the claim, well, or at least sort of the, the thesis of the book, is that the thirst for tea was the force that shaped the modern world. And, well, we're going to, we'll kind of expand on that, but how did tea become a universal beverage? Um, yeah, I mean, you definitely, I'll just kind of get back to your, the first part of the question, too, where you said a thirst for tea shaped the modern world. Um, and I should say, I really meant it was sort of double, like a thirst for tea and a thirst for empire and uh uh, well. Not only the Europeans, but Chinese as well, you know, but right. they thought of empire in terms of uh, not necessarily formally controlling places, but having power over other places in the world. So, you know, it's this kind of general drive. I like the term thirst because it's, you know, you're never satisfied. Right. <laughs> or it's hard to quench, put it that way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because tea is such an old um, beverage. We know we have evidence of the Chinese drinking tea thousands of years ago. But actually, unlike some other commodities, it didn't globalize as early as, say, um, coffee. It's actually later than cocoa. Um, It didn't really... What was interesting to me, there are a lot of um, histories of global commodities, is the way in which the Chinese actually prevented it initially from spreading it, spread to Asia, to Japan, you know, uh, what is... Um, you know, other areas in East Asia, but didn't spread to India or, um, you know, many other areas until really somewhat late. You know, it starts moving into Central Asia and parts of the Middle East um, in the, well, really 16th, 17th century and gets to Europe and even what really surprised me to England. England's sort of the last place in Europe that starts to really drink tea. So originally the Portuguese traded um, tea with uh, Japan and East Asia, and they drank some, um, the Dutch also, and then the French, and then finally the English. So that was kind of interesting that they were not early, certainly early adopters. Right. But, <laughs> you know, you'd think so, given how much they love it. Um, well, so the, the British were happily drinking coffee and chocolate, you know, for yeah. quite a while before tea came. Well, tea, as you said, it, it had been drunk for thousands of years um, prior to that in China, and then also Japan, and associated with so many, you know, very, very sort of mythical and, and formal ceremonies, which was very attractive, I think, to a lot of Europeans who were now just getting a taste of some of that, those cultural things. Yeah, and initially the... Um Europeans, especially, you know, the French, the English, and the Dutch, were very taken with Japanese and Chinese culture. And it was just a few Europeans that were trading and missionaries that were going to the East that were just astonished by, as they said, as you put it, very formal tea cultures that were well-developed. And they saw the East as a very civilized place, and tea being a very... um, civilizing beverage. That's where I really argued they kind of, uh, the Europeans adopted the Chinese and Japanese attitudes towards tea, not just the taste for tea. So this idea that it sobers you and makes you um, 
kind of, and sometimes that intellectual person, you know, it makes your head very clear, you're very awake, mm-hmm. or a good worker, all those ideas that Chinese, especially, and the Japanese had right. circulated long before they came to Europe. But they did travel with the tea, but, you know, the idea that it would make you a nice, sober, civilized, productive person. <laughs> right. and, and also touted sort of as a cure-all, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think that's something that was very interesting right, in the especially, well, all the Europeans, but the English especially, they had lived through civil war, you know, in the 17th century, and as they put it, um, you know, executed a monarch and had faced the, you know, fire in London, and, you know, it was a difficult time for them, and they really, and plague, I should say, as well. So the idea that tea would make you feel better, and that it was, they really thought it's a medicine, is really when it first came to Europe. Hmm. Um, it's very appealing. They didn't have many medicines, you know, and I yeah. thought, I took that really seriously, that, you know, and it's not, we think of consumer culture as, you know, the desire for frivolous goods or um, pleasure and entertainment and, you know, being distracted from your daily life. And I said, these guys were suffering, <laughs> and it really was a desire to just feel better. And um, it did act, I mean, the tea acted as a means of cultural transmission. I mean, they became, as you wrote, that it promoted an interest in Chinese goods, all the the fanciful Chinese goods that started to be collected by the Westerners. Right, the, um, what we call China, you know, yeah. the porcelain from China and Japan. And, of course, that's just the elites that could afford that, those kinds of fine goods. And silk, it's really China and silk is the um, most desirable luxury goods in the 17th century, 18th century. And that's not just in Europe. I found in Latin America... Chinese goods um, in, you know, obviously the new United States or the American colonies. So that sort of desire for these fine China um, goods is very uh, much a part of, oh, it's also in the Middle East, so just almost everywhere outside of China. So the tea came with this sort of very, what was seen to be a very elite, luxurious lifestyle. So (laughs) So the upper class was pretty much, tea had been pretty much established as a drink for the upper class in the mid-1700s, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it was still not a common beverage for for everyone else. No, <clears throat> and not even. Um, some middle-class people that were business people that traded in tea had access to it, um, but it was very, very expensive. Mm. Um, and so it was very, you know, very limited. It was like upper class. Middle, you know, elite kind of merchant classes and traders, um, but certainly not something that average people, you know, they drank beer. That was pretty much what <laughs> you had for breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, homemade beer is the most common um, drink. All right. Well, and, of course, the British, you know, it started to spread like wildfire, shall we say. And yeah. being the being the, the wonderful colonists and, and you know, empire seekers that they were, I guess they figured, why not capture the market? Um, Well, initially, when it spread, that became, you'd think, oh, that's great, because the British taxed it. And so when the commodity became, you know, relatively a mass commodity, the British government gained a tremendous amount of money so that they could um, support their growing military and, you know, growth as a world power. So that's the kind of interesting link between tea, but also at that time, coffee was also taxed, and alcohol was too, but it's really important to the finances of the British state. But then you'd say, so what's the problem? Keep expanding the market, except for the fact that tea only came 
the only real imports came from China. At that point, Japan wasn't really exporting. So the more British people drank tea, the more they were dependent on China. And China got more and more um, anxious about doing good, you know, doing business with these um, what they call foreign barbarians. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> the British were getting more and more anxious about their trade deficit, just importing tea, and then the Chinese didn't want to purchase anything <clears throat> from the British in turn. So that's a very well-known story because, you know, initially the British are using silver to buy their tea, which is, in economic theory, considered <clears throat> making your nation dependent on this huge foreign empire. But eventually, you know, they start to trade opium from their colonies in India. That's right in India and also them um, traded from parts of the Middle East, but mostly opium from India and got the Chinese addicted to opium. So that made the Chinese more anxious about mass consumption. You know, you see, it touches everything. I told you. This. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Um, it just spreads from one, you know, one topic to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, then of course, they're so not trading with China. Um, you had to find another place to to grow this tea. So tell us a little bit how that market was transformed. Okay, um, right. So for since oh about the 1750s or so, there were people who theorists, economists, politicians who were very worried about this dependence on China and said, just like we talk about being dependent on foreign oil, it was that kind of language, you know, that makes our nation weak. So they were starting to imagine where else could we get tea. And what's surprising is they didn't think about trading more with, um, well, they, you know, Japan was cut off, but any other Asian source, they said, we need to grow our own tea. And what's the most likely place that it will grow? And so the, experience, the obvious um, similarity was India, and particularly the border, India's um, northeast territory where it borders with um, parts of China. And the, the British didn't, there are very few British people there, but... They're all, you know, their limited knowledge was, oh, this is like China. It's got the same soil, the same temperature, et cetera. Um, but they, so they're imagining that they could do it, but it wasn't until the British went to war with um, what was then a growing Burmese empire on the border there of northeast India, what is now um, Assam and those regions, mm-hmm. um, that soldiers were um, there fighting actually with some local Assamese against the Burmese that they discovered tea plants. So it's again tied to war in a different way because it's a byproduct of, I guess, war with this other empire. And initially, the, so these British soldiers were like, ha, we can grow tea here or this tea could be cultivated. But the British East India Company that controlled trade with China initially didn't want to develop that trade because they had a monopoly on the trade with China. And they controlled India as well. So it was, the tea was initially found in the early 1820s. And it wasn't until the 1830s when they really started to feel that there was going to be problems with China that they said, oh, look, this is tea. And they officially declared the plant they discovered in the northeast of India to be officially the tea plant. That was on Christmas Eve in 1834, so I think huh. it's a really interesting moment. Yeah. Um, and then started to um, support it, um, the development of plantations. So by plantations, I mean very large entities with, like, ideally they felt that you needed 500 workers and the cert- one worker per acre so that you need large tracts of land. Hmm. Uh, in China and in Japan, tea was not grown that way. It's just small farmers that grew tea, and then it was collected by merchants and processed centrally. 
But So it can be grown by local residents, but in Assam and those areas where they found the tea, those people did not want to grow it or cultivate it. They had it in their region. They didn't want to work for the British. Mm. So. And they were not really a plantation or agricultural society. Right? No, they're um, what is called tribal, that meaning um, that term has very negative meanings um, in other areas. In India, in that area, it means that people who are um, they're kind of outside the formal boundaries of the state, or they were at that time, and they were not nomadic, but they were small groups, small political groups um, that were also, I won't say at war with each other, but very competitive with each other, too. Mm. Um, I imagine different, you know, relatives in different groups, kind of right. suspicious of each other. Well, there certainly were, um, were probably a lot of warring factions um, you know, getting getting people to buy Indian tea as opposed to Chinese tea. Yes, exactly. So as I just mentioned, um, the plantations began in the 1830s, but initially a lot of people then assume, oh, the British and Europeans and Americans are drinking Indian tea, you know, tea grown on these plantations. But the tea at first was just terrible tasting. <laughs> as far as I can tell, I mean, the major retailers that had a good sense of what tea should taste like, uh, described it as, um, like, weedy. I love that phrase, because it probably was a weed, <laughs> right, if you think yeah. about it. Um, uh, they described it as having, one person kept saying, it makes a funny film on the top of the cup when you add milk, which I thought, hmm. I mean, that's interesting. I really don't know <laughs> it doesn't see how that would be the case, but... Uh, I tend to believe them because I really think the British didn't know how to process this tea very effectively. They, their workers didn't know how to make it. They imported a couple of Chinese tea makers, but the Chinese are very good at restricting knowledge about how to actually produce the tea so, or grow it properly. Uh, so consumers were very reticent to buy the tea. Um, you know, you have statements of, uh, of very patriotic people saying, oh, yes, this will be great. It will free our country from dependence on China. But in the point of fact, because it wasn't a very good commodity, it didn't really do that. So that got very interesting to me because then there's the problem of, well, you have the land. You can, you know, they've basically conquered workers, but <clears throat> can't conquer the consumer. And so <clears throat> and at first I thought, oh, they'll try to use patriotism to sell this. Like, oh, you know, drinking Indian tea will save us from being um, dependent on this negative Chinese barbarian. But people thought Chinese tea was luxury tea. It tasted good. That's what tea was. <clears throat> so that marketing didn't work. So ultimately, um, instead of selling it as Indian, retailers just snuck it into blends. <laughs> you know? huh. So they'd mix it with Chinese tea and sell it just as their whatever their, you know, it was local bl blends in the 19th century, not... Um, big brands, you know, but it'd be the local retailer. It's his, you can, you know how um, coffee shops have their names for various right. things. It would be the same. Right. Huh, interesting. <laughs> so they didn't tell people, but they ultimately, the claim is that then people acquired taste because the Indian tea was much stronger tasting. Hmm. Um, you know, this black Assamese tea, uh -huh. even though ultimately the British also brought Chinese plants to Assam, it's still a description of the tea is that However, their manufacturing it was much less delicate than the Chinese teas. Hmm, interesting. Well, we are going to take a short break. Um, you get yourself a drink of water. I can oh, hear thank the you. <laughs> um, we're going to take a short break because there is a lot to talk about how 
how consumers were convinced. And that's a very interesting story in itself. So stay tuned, and we'll come back after a short break. Bob Moore is the founder of Bob's Red Mill, top quality supplier of grains, flowers, and general nutritional goodness from Oregon. He's talking to us about their signature millstones, a very specific way of making whole grain flour. So what's the secret, Bob? Follow me to the mill room. Well, these are just like the millstones that the Romans used to grind their grains. In fact, these stones came from the same quarry near Paris, France, where the Romans got their stones. The company that makes our millstones pulls their quartz from the same quarry, and they make mills for us that are just wonderful. Bob explains how the millstones grind much slower and at cooler temperatures than modern steel rollers. The process keeps the grains cool, preserving the flavor and nutrition. Look at what they produce. I love how they keep things simple and just right. All the nutrition is there, just like nature intended. After almost 40 years in the milling business, they're serving up over 400 organic, gluten-free, and whole-grain foods right here from the mill in Oregon, sending them off to destinations around the world. We think we can make a difference by sticking to the traditional way of stone milling. And so, that's what we're doing. To learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their mission to bring good food for all, visit bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Erica Rappaport, and we're talking about tea and how it shaped the modern world. A Thirst for Empire is the name of the book, How Tea Shaped the Modern World. Erica, we were talking about, you know, the consumers not really liking the tea from other places, India, you know, specifically in Ceylon. Um, What did it take to convince them? Um, Well, that's where at the point, um, it's about the 1870s where there's enough tea produced in India that it becomes a problem to sell it. You know, really, uh, the planters and retailers thought, how do we get, <clears throat> sorry, I need a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Allergies. Um, you know, how do we convince people to change their taste, which is a really interesting thing in food history in general. You know, um, I really think tea isn't just one thing, it's, you know, depending on where it comes from, how it's processed, etc. Mm-hmm. So at that point, planters, they did something really interesting. Initially, actually, they would just literally get their relatives at home to try to serve tea to their friends and relations. So I think that's, you know, the kind of personal history of globalization is fascinating. Yeah, grassroots, me. right? <laughs> yeah, very grassroots. So they would, I realized it took a while to figure out that these are the same people. It would be like a cousin or sister or brother that would start to open a retail shop or open um, or just 
have tea parties where they were serving the tea and letting people know this is the fashionable tea. So it started rather slow, but then um, the planters really realized that retailers were in general resisting them because they said this product isn't selling. We're going to lose our business if you keep selling this stuff. So um, they really were one of the first uh, manufacturers to really think about advertising and not just advertising to consumers, but also to the merchants, you know, the retailers and importers. So I found um, lots of discussions among the planters in India and then um, by 1890s in um, Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, thinking about advertising and how should we pay for this and will it work? And so they established um, a fund. First, they were voluntary funds where planters paid into the fund for advertising. But, of course, voluntary methods don't work very well. Mm. Some people do it, others don't. And so they were able to get the colonial states in both of those places to pass a tax on the tea that is exported that directly went to pay for global advertising. That, to me, was really fascinating because it shows the power of what a colony can do. You know, a colonial state can go ahead and just do this Hmm. um, without much complaint. And so then they had a a large war chest that built up, especially by the 1880s and 1890s, to pay for um, first trade advertising that would be in the, there are all these, I love them, but they're quite boring, but trade press, you know, merchants' paper, so the tea and coffee trade journal or something like that, there would be lots of ads in there, try Indian tea, and they would say, it's healthier. That was the biggest argument that they made. And their argument was based on the idea, they would say, that Indian tea is made under the supervision of Europeans, unlike the Chinese, and so it's less adulterated. In Chinese tea, it's true that tea was adulterated, as were most foods, with all kinds of chemicals, um, fillers, you know, dust, dirt, lots of problems. So the problem of food adulteration was huge in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So the main argument that the Europeans made was not that this tea was more patriotic, just that it was better for you. Hmm. Well, I mean, this was also... Also that it was machine-made, which turns out that it wasn't really machine-made until (laughs) after that point. But, you know, very few people used machines. They said, people don't touch it. You know, modern, hygienic... That's what I was going to say. It kind of, kind of went right along with the time of the Industrial Revolution so that, you know, all things were better and good, that they were made with machines. And yes, exactly. Industrialized. To me, that's where it, the story sort of speaks to our modern concerns about processed foods. And I thought, oh, they're selling this as a processed food, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that processing is better. It was a good the thing. The yeah. thing is just it's more uniform, of course. Uh, but that it's not touched by human hands, which is not true. The yeah. tea is definitely picked by hand huh. throughout that period. It's sorted. I have a picture in the book of a guy who's sorting tea just with like a like a rotating colander thing, and it just drops on the smaller teas drop on the floor, huh. you know. And he's barefoot, <laughs> and you know, you realize that that was just a marketing strategy. But it worked for people, as you say. This is the time where everything is. The modern is really good, industrial, yeah. if it's European. So that became a really powerful um, sales. So that was so that was the negative advertising in a, in a right. sense. But then, I mean, we we had talked earlier about you know all the claims made by people that oh well it's it's has therapeutic value and it's uh, you know it it um, well first of all right. the temperance movement came along so. 
it was exactly so that kind of modernity of tea and that kind of thing was really more directed it was directed toward consumers but definitely retailers but a broader argument starts to develop that it's tea in general is very healthy that's so that health claims is really important so it's healthier not only than chinese tea but then anything else you can drink you know so especially alcohol and as i said the most british people are drinking some form of alcohol is their main drink that they have, you know, enjoy. And so the temperance movement really picked up right around, it's it's a parallel history, so that really helped the Indian tea producers. The temperance communities spread, actually they originally came from the United States, the kind of idea of no alcohol. So in Britain, the idea of temperance was just drinking um, uh, non-distilled, you know, like wine or beer was considered temperate. But that total teetotal, what we now call teetotal, teetotaling, right? <laughs> uh, right, comes from the United States in the 1820s, late 1820s, spreads very rapidly in the northern parts of Britain and Scotland, Ireland, and so um, the temperance community, which was always a, uh, I want to say it's like a minority community, but a very powerful one that was allied with different kinds of evangelical communities, but not entirely. There were some that were not evangelical that were supporters of temperance. Uh, spread and the way they made money was to support their movement was often to hold these giant tea parties. And I got fascinated with these because they would be tea parties held in public buildings or outside that served tea to thousands of people. In the starting in the late 1820s and then it's continued throughout the 19th into huh. the 20th century. Interesting. Um, I always think of them as sort of like um, you know, like it's the origins of the church dinner or yeah. something like that, but. Big to barbecue me, or southern getting, barbecue. As anybody's tried to throw a party, serving food to that number of people is extraordinary, you know. Yeah. And getting, especially hot tea, so they'd have 30 teapots, you know, going, and um, they would describe thousands of pounds of bread, butter, um, sweets, you know, the kind of thing we associate with afternoon tea, but afternoon tea wasn't a habit yet. So I actually... I'm hoping some historian really picks up on this question, but I think that these Christian communities and temperance communities spread the idea of tea drinking um, rapidly. And so, you know, too, and they were serving particularly poor people and people who were factory workers in the new industrial factories. And you could obviously think they're very poor. Going to one of these things, you either pay a very small amount to get the mounds of foods and beverages, or they were free. Right. So it was very appealing to come to them. Because, hmm. um, you know, they were especially spread in the 1840s, which in Britain is a time of rapid expansion of industrialization, but a lot of strikes. They're known as the hungry 40s because there were a lot of downturns right. and things. So. Well, that, in fact, that reminded me, you, when you said serving to, you know, tea to, you know, such large groups and thousands of people. And you have, um, I think you have an image of, a, of tea carts, uh, during oh, wartime right. in the book, at, but the I want to read something that you that you wrote because I, I want you to explain more about what you mean by that. The British okay. the British self image became that of a nation addicted to its cuppa, at the head, <laughs> at at the head of an imperial family of tea drinkers, an image that underpinned the war effort in both world wars. And there are a lot of advertising images connected with the war right. and soldiers drinking tea. And 
talk a little bit about that. What you, what what you mean that they were it, it underpinned the war effort? Yeah, I mean, in Britain, it's a sort of um, common sense notion. They say it all the time, or people used to <laughs> when they remembered the, especially World War Two, is that they. The British survived the war or fought the war on tea, that they couldn't have won the war against, you know, Nazi Germany without tea. And I think um, I was intrigued by that idea itself, but also the fact that there was rationing during the war and there right, wasn't much right. tea. British people were reduced to very, um, oh, it was approximately two-thirds of what their normal consumption was, and then, of course, it didn't increase. And rationing lasted well beyond the war. So it was more than a dozen years of rationing. So I thought, you're going to have advertising that will tell them not to drink tea. <laughs> that would make sense, you know, sort of state messages, you know, uh, don't waste, don't drink, you know, tea, try. They did say try Ovaltine and things like that. But in general, um, I was really, I thought, oh, I'll have a little section on the war and that idea, but it won't be important in terms of spreading markets. But it turned out to be the opposite was the case. Mm-hmm. Is that um, I had records of all the the retailers, but by that time there were really expert advertisers and institutions to spread advertising. We're extremely concerned about the impact of rationing on the markets. After, you know, it's funny because they envisioned a longer war than I think the generals and the officials did, they really thought this isn't going to be a little blip. It's going to be a long-term change in the market. Uh, so they started to talk about the type of advertising that we now associate with the term public relations, and they even start to use that term. And coming from, again, the United States, some of the ideas of we need to keep the idea of the tea industry as a positive good, that tea is a positive good, that it serves the nation. So they really thought through that problem. They didn't say drink tea necessarily, but they did say tea will get you through the war. And so what they ultimately did was meet with factory owners that were producing the munitions, um, meet with the heads. They really thought, okay, the Army is a huge institution, needs to have contracts, you know, to buy tea. And so even though private rationing, you know, in your home you're rationed if you were in the Army or the what they call, you know, things like the fire service, police, any of those kind of auxiliary forces, you could have as much tea as you wanted. So that's where they ended up marketing was to all these public entities. Hmm. And they, you know, teaching them tea is the energy that will get you through the war. You don't want drunk soldiers, of course, right? Right. Uh, Well, and I saw ads that said, tea revives you. And it it showed a soldier getting perked up, you know, with a cup of tea. right. Right. And uh, Yeah, and that's where you get that also the idea is it's physically reviving but also mentally, right? It'll right. it'll keep your morale up. It's your that everyday comfort that you remember of home. So that's where and it is again like the sense of the seventeenth century, that feeling that looking for comfort is an important force in history. And during the war when you're getting bombed, I'm sure it is as well. Well and somebody had asked I don't know whether I saw this in your book or on online someplace, but um, in researching it, that tea, um, someone asked, oh, I guess somebody big in the war, one of the generals, I'm not sure, why, you know, why tea was so important. And he said it gave us the courage and that matey feeling. Oh, right. Right? Yeah. Which gets gets the best effort out of us to help our fellow humans. Oh, interesting. That was pretty. I think <laughs> we should all drink more tea, don't you? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> right. um. Yeah, no, he really, I think that rhetoric, it came from my plant. In some ways, it came from the planters who had been advertising tea this way at least since the 30s. But 
but it became common sense. And so, and it's true that generally speaking, you can have a nice cup of tea by yourself, but in the war, in the advertising, they always presented as in a group. You know, you're not at home, you know, but they represented something like you're in your group of people you work with in the factory, the soldiers. Yeah, kind or of a social, a social hour. Pictures of people like policemen serving tea to civilians who had just lost their home. That kind of, it's the act of giving it, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. and right. serving someone, I think, was really important. Yeah, a nice, a nice um, cultural kind of habit to get into, you know, offering yeah. someone a, a tea. Uh, that so, advertising. It was amazing that that advertising had such an effect, and of course, being funded by you know by government dollars too. In, in right, part, exactly. you know, I mean, that kind of unheard of, but that it had such an effect. And you know, look where tea is today. But the um, then there was you know at the end of World War II, it was the end of the empire. How did decolonization? affect the tea industry? Yeah, that's where the book gets long, but I think it's really important. Because <laughs> <laughs> I really, you know, because I made this argument, all these forces of the empire helped globalize this commodity, but we really made that point across was the fact that almost immediately when the British lost the, they lost India and um, Ceylon, it was still called Ceylon until 1972, uh, right in 1948, uh-huh. and then um, you know, they're African colonies. They start to lose the tea-producing colonies in the late 50s and early 60s. And the consumption of tea dropped in Britain and Australia and Canada, all the white, what they call the white dominions or had been dominions, big mark tea markets, almost at the exact same moment. And that was very intriguing. I said, oh, I've got a rise and fall story here, but why? You know, you'd think that um, tea, as it at first, when rationing was removed, people went out and went crazy and drank a lot of tea, and there was a little spike in the, um, like, 1953-54, right after that. But by 56, 57, 58, statistics, you know, the British start doing statistics, and they're starting to re-advertise, and they want to figure out who's drinking tea. And per capita consumption starts a steady decline that's continued to this day. Hmm. So... One of the, I have, there's lots of theories about it. I mean, there are a lot of forces, and I talk about the influence of young people starting to be very rebellious, rejecting the, everything to do with their parents, right? All their foods, taste, clothing, music. Um, well, coffee, so coffee was big, yeah. Fussy, old-fashioned, um, you know, so they start drinking. Well, the, the, they thought they were drinking espresso, and that was the big market, you know, in cafes. It's actually a small market. What they really started drinking was Nescafe and instant coffee. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And the coffee industry, it kind of ruined the taste for coffee as well. In Britain, they always had a nice little, a smaller market, but specialty. You know, their coffee had been pretty good. And then they really took to that horrible instant coffee that gets watered down. Yeah. And that probably started in the war because you'd have the instant or something called coffee essence, which I don't know what it was, Mm. (laughs) some kind of, it was a liquid that you added hot water to, but um, I think it was pretty nasty. But (laughs) (laughs) still, that Nescafe was seen as very modern, clean, there's no mess. It was really um, advertised to housewives, like, look how easy it is, you know, there's less work, you're busy, it's sort of a labor-saving drink, unlike tea. But young people... Also, I believe that they lost their taste for tea. That generation that grew up, was born during or just before the war, grew up during the war, they never really drank good tea. 
So if you think about it by the 60s, it's not just that it's um, fussy and old-fashioned. I don't think they acquired the taste for it like their parents' generation. Hmm. Um, because they were always, kids were, the way they reduced rationing is they'd often say, oh, the child ration was eliminated. But, of course, people probably didn't give their kids tea right. if they were. Whereas before they did, young, you know, children from, oh, three, four were drinking tea. So that generation, the 60s generation, they probably thought of tea as pretty, not a great drink. Well, yeah. and, then, and of course, as you say, they were revolting against anything that, you know, smacked of their parents and the yeah. generation before them. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, that was on exactly. both sides he of the pond. Go with it. Right, right. You know? And once again, advertising came in to save the day. Yeah, so Amazing. that's what I thought would be really funny is that originally I saw this very bizarre advertising in the 60s that, I, you know, when you look at it from our vantage point, it just seemed ridiculous, but it was trying to make, it was industry-wide as well as the various companies, trying to sell tea as hip and modern <laughs> and useful and as sexy as, you know, coffee and rock and roll. So they'd have all kinds of... Um, T-shirts that then would have the sort of San Francisco-style graphics that said T, but T-E-A across your T-shirt. Mini skirts, you know, um, they would hire go-go dancers to dance and then drink tea songs. They got a music group that they called um, the T-Set. That was the name of the whole campaign was Join the T-Set. But a campaign that, you know, this like the, um, what are they called, the monkeys, right. you know, a made-up band to, to be like the Beatles, to sell tea and go around to young people, uh, mimic, kind of mimicking the coffee culture and rock and roll. And I found that even in New Zealand, they would sell it as uh, surf culture, drink a cup of tea on the beach. <laughs> like, well, Out in, in the water. Yeah. I wasn't able, I found a video online of a, it was a battle of the band sponsored by the tea industry in L.A. in the 60s. It's like, oh, my God, this is globalization in another order. <laughs> right. Um, and they it did well, really they, work because I think ultimately it didn't fit with the image of tea that had been constructed for hundreds of years, you yeah, know. Yeah. But they did manage then to get some celebrities and some rock and roll stars to, to do a little bit of campaign for them. Um, yeah, they got a lot. And there's a famous one of even the Beatles that um, – there were pictures of the Beatles drinking tea, and so those were celebrated. But also in Australia, they did a television commercial. But lesser bands, those ones that had a real, they were on the top 20, but just for a short period of time, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, a year or two, and then forgotten. But, yeah, they definitely, they really used rock and roll and then television advertising. And Britons will especially remember there were these very cute um, commercials and uh, point-of-sale kinds of uh, events with chimpanzees drinking tea. Oh, wow. And that was, you know, it was very <laughs> famous. And then there's been a lot of animal rights activists because they brought them back recently. And, <laughs> you know, they became little celebrities dressed up as, they would dress up these chimps in various British, like, you know, different characters, like a working class builder yeah. or something like that or a businessman. Um, but really intense advertising. So I think it did save the market somewhat. Hmm. But it still has, you know, even though as you opened the segment... The British still think of themselves as tea drinkers, and they drink a lot of tea, but they did, they drink maybe less than half as much as they did in the 1930s, so that's really? big. Wow. Yeah. Well, I have a question um, that I want to get answered before we, before we have to close, and, and that is you, you talk about how this, all of this, uh, you know, capturing the market, and, or actually forming a market and developing a market, um, and 
how, you know, with the tea switching over to India um, and consumerism and, and getting consumers to buy into something like this. So when you say how tea shaped the modern world, kind of like give us, give me an idea, give us an idea of like what in particular you mean by that. Um, well, in that case, I really was referring to our sense that um, by buying something, we can feel better, which is such a essence of consumer society, right? Mm-hmm. Or we can change who we are, mm-hmm. um, that our identity through what we consume, that shapes our identity. So I was really thinking of that. But, of course, also the um, sort of trade, it sort of works on multiple levels. So it's our, that basic idea to me was essence, but also all the trade patterns that were established in especially the 19th century. Right. There was the 19th century was a very global time. There's some new books that have come out about the global 19th century, which global trade, globalization. There's really um, tremendous amount of uh, exchange in that period of ideas, goods, people, immigrants, etc. And then it actually declines in the early um, 20th century, and then re- revamps up again after World War II. We have this moment of globalization. But I really want to argue that globalization is a longer-term process that even we can date back to. Well, Other certain... historians will say very early, but T, if you follow T, you can see that in yeah. a very real way, and you can see who did it. <laughs> Instead of just a theory of globalization, which we, there's a lot of um, abstract writing about theories, etc., and anti-globalization movements, but you can see who profited from it, why did consumers buy into it, um, you know, I mean, they're not my heroes, but I, I really like those guys who are the grocers and, you know, it's like on the intimate scale as well as a global, you know, that we make globalization. Right. Absolutely. So yeah. that's well, what I think, you well, know, kind of captured it for me. And you managed, I mean, as I said in the beginning, you managed to weave all of these many topics that, that played into the whole story of tea, politics and the social hierarchies and and as you just mentioned, the global global economies. I mean, it just—it's amazing that it that tea really transcended just a mere beverage in a cup, and yeah. <laughs> and and you really um, you really did quite a job in looking into the background and history of that. And it is, and the stories, the anecdotes that you um, that you enclose along the way are are just so you know illuminating. It's just, it's really. Quite an interesting hey, read. Thank you. And who knew? Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I you know, I I never stopped to think that. Well, wait, how did the Indian tea market get developed? Well, of course. Yeah. Then you stop and think. Okay, Indian East Trading Company. Well, this and that. Yeah. And then, right? It's all the there. longer. It's harder work than that. I guess I would say. <laughs> you know, lots right. of money and hard work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I wish you the best of luck with this book, and I thank you very much for sharing your time and and explaining so many of the intricacies. And there is so much more behind. Behind that story. <laughs> and I encourage people to take uh, well, a look at it. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. It's Erica Rappaport. And again, the name of her book is A Thirst for Empire How Tea Shaped the Modern World. Well, thank you for listening. And this is your host, Linda Palaccio. And I hope you join us again on A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.